The information provided in this podcast is general in nature. All medical and surgical procedures have potential benefits and risks. Please consult an ophthalmologist for medical advice specific to your individual patients. Hi, my name is Christina Icavangelo, and on behalf of the Clinical Relationships Team at Vision Eye Institute, I'd like to welcome you to our podcast series, Shared Vision, Shared Care. In each episode, I will be joined by two of Vision Eye Institute's ophthalmologists, and we will discuss a collaborative care approach on various subspecialties. As a clinical optometrist myself, it is our aim that this series will strengthen the relationship between referrers and ophthalmologists. One where you will feel confident knowing when to refer, what to refer and how to co-manage. I will be asking the questions on behalf of you, the referrers. Today in this episode, I am joined by Dr. Tess Huynh and Dr. Abby Tennant to discuss all things refractive surgery. In brief, both doctors are highly respected refractive, corneal and cataract surgeons, with Dr. Tess Huynh located at our Hurstville Clinic in Sydney and Dr. Abby Tennant at our St Kilda Road and Blackburn Clinics in Melbourne. And I want to thank the doctors for joining me today. As an optometrist, you're as referrers and, you know, lots of listeners that are clicking in today, we're often faced with a patient who, you know, might come in, we've not seen them before, they'll come, they'll sit on the chair and they will say that they're interested in laser surgery. So, you know, besides the typical things that we're looking for of, you know, what degree of myopia, hyperopia, things like that, what are some questions and sort of outside of the box questions that we can ask our patients during history taking um, to make sure that we select a patient who's ideal, not only with their clinical presentation, but, you know, mentally, um, emotionally are prepared for that process that we're then going to send them through to you for laser assessment. Yeah. Hi, Christina. I think that's, well, that's a pretty loaded question. It's a good question. And I think when you're talking about psychological and emotional aspects to laser surgery, there's quite a lot in it. Uh, effectively patients know a lot more now than they did 10 years ago. So you'll find that they're less reliant on what referrers are telling them. They're less reliant on what we tell them in the clinic. They they go to Dr. Google often and self-research uh, the surgery or the treatment that they're interested in. So you'll find when they actually are sitting in the referrer's chair, more often than not, uh, they're, they're pretty clued up on refractive surgery already they've watched videos they've they've read content and they've got a clear idea of of what they hope to be able to achieve so it's not the same as in in the old old days and when I started when Tess started doing this surgery there was very little information online and uh, patients were completely reliant on being told you might be suitable for this or you might like to consider that uh, they, they, they didn't really research it themselves at all. So I think that's the first point to make. They're, they're pretty uh, informed already. Um, and then when you talk about range, well, look, you know, we can talk about suitability for laser with basic parameters. Every surgeon's got their own parameters that they'll work within. But by and large, um, across the board, you'll find anything from minus 10 to plus 450 will be suitable for, for most laser surgeries and about four and a half, 450 of astigmatism as well. Uh, but, of course, that will be um, variable on the extreme ends of that scale. You might have someone, for example, who's a very high myope. They've got a particularly steep and thick cornea. So you might have plenty of room to safely do 
an 11 or an 11 and a half uh, diopter LASIK treatment. Those decisions should really be made by the surgeon. But I'm just making that point to, to, to highlight that parameters are there for a reason, but you can colour outside of the lines if you need to in certain, uh, certain circumstances. Um, and then and then getting to the emotional and psychological, I think that's potentially one of the most important aspects of assessing patients for this surgery. Uh, it's an elective surgery. If someone is not prepared to undergo this surgery and take upon the uh, possibility of some risk or the possibility of some complication, uh, then potentially it's not the right surgery for them. If they're expecting perfect all of the time and they want uh, perfect permanent results, well, that's not realistic because guess what? The, the lasers are very accurate, but our human bodies change in time. And so as bodies change, the result might wear off or they might get cataract or they might become more myopic and so on and so forth. They have to be able to understand that those are the realities of this surgery. And if they can't accept risk, if they can't accept that it's not going to be a permanent result in, in many cases, um, if they're too nervous about it, if they're too anxious, then potentially it's not the surgery for them. Sometimes it's hard to, to ascertain when someone's sitting in front of you um, whether they will or won't cope uh, with those issues because people are pretty good actors. Sometimes they'll come in and they'll answer everything perfectly and they'll they'll be very charming, but actually they've got a lot of anxiety under the surface and that may only become apparent um, when uh, they feel um, threatened or traumatised by something in life and then you see a whole other aspect of personality. So we're really going down a rabbit hole here in terms of <laughs> uh, assessing that, but the more time you spend with with people, the more you really understand what they're about. You want to ask them about their life. You want to know what they do, what their hobbies are, how their relationships are, what their expectations are, how they've coped with other um, elective procedures in the past if they've had any. Um, those questions become important as indicators for us to see whether or not they're going to be psychologically, psychologically prepared to take on something like a laser surgery. Tess, I don't know if you want to chime in and add anything there. No, look, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, having said all that, though, I think our role is, um, as you say, they're, they're already researched, they're already very motivated. I, I feel that I'm there to also reassure them that this surgery is quite safe. You know, we get really good results. You know, it's not perfect and we, we have to really stress that it's not perfect. But if they can accept some compromise if they can accept that you know one percent of the time we may have to do an enhancement we may have to do something else to address their dry eye condition to address some minor thing but on the whole I think they're just looking for reassurance that you know that they'll get good results for the money that they're paying so I think you know we've got to fund that balance as well you know yes you talk about all the risks but on the other hand we're also there to reassure them that, you know, we do this well, you know, this is the best place to do it and we've got the best equipment and the best team to make sure that they do get, you know, to the end. It's about working out their motivation for the surgery and, and, and making sure that they're doing it for the right reasons and, and for the right visual tasks that they're looking for as well. Oh, look, I think the surgery certainly is low risk. And if you look at it against other ocular surgeries or indeed any other surgeries that we perform on other parts of the body, it really is a very safe, uh, low risk procedure overall. But what patients need to understand is that they're coming into this with 
uh, with eyes that are essentially healthy. Now, they're not all. I don't want to get into a discussion. You can operate. You can do refractive surgery on eyes with other pathologies. But presuming that you've got a patient with no pathology and they correct up well in glasses or contact lenses, chances are, you know, almost almost nothing's 100%, but almost 100% of cases will do brilliantly and they'll see well and they won't have concerns. But what if that person has really annoying dry eye for six months? Um, They have to accept going into the procedure that that is a possibility. And if they're relaxed about that, if they've accepted that, that's what I'm trying to get at, if they've accepted that, then they're going to do fine. Mm-hmm. Christine, if they can't accept that that might be a possibility, then that's a problem because they're the patients who end up unhappy. So when you're when you're sitting with a patient as a as an optometrist and they're very anxious about wanting perfection and they don't want to accept the possibility their eye might become more dry for a period of months or they don't want to accept the possibility that they might need a touch-up treatment, they're the patients who really need to go home and think about it. Uh, they're the patients that need might might need more counselling. They're not they're not necessarily at any higher risk than anyone else. And I agree with Tess. This is a very low risk procedure, but they have to go in feeling they're doing something good for themselves because mm. they are. They have to be excited about it, and they have to work with the results, whatever those results are. There's a lot of anxiety around as well, Abby. Like I had a patient who had seen someone else and you know essentially she you can tell uh, when you speak to her that she has anxiety issues but that surgeon told her that she wasn't suitable because she needed to see a psychologist and (laughs) that really threw her off Mm. so I think yeah like yeah I, I I do get that we have to exclude difficult patients with really high expectations who are unrealistic a a lot of them can be managed as well and I think a lot of them just need a bit of reassurance but I don't think I don't think the optometrist needs to exclude them at that point I think I think the referral should basically go along the lines of you know this patient potentially suitable for laser within range stable refraction exhibiting anxieties around such and such issues and then when the patient's assessed the surgeon can make their own decision we're treating the whole person we're not treating an eye or two eyes and that person comes with all sorts of medical issues, psychological baggage. They come with families. They come with all sorts of things, and you have to take it all into context. So, yeah, um, that's that's the most beautiful thing about what we do. We're treating. Yeah. And you made a good point in that the referral um, should flag some of these issues that might help us to, you know, kind of be prepared to to listen and to give more empathy. So it's it's you know like teamwork when we can have. The optometrist and our orthoptists kind of just flag those things and, and, and then we're kind of mentally prepared as well. Along the lines of um, a referral letter is, so besides having, so, you know, we've got information that we can gather from the history, information about the patient as a whole person um, and their personality. Um, so getting a little bit more into the nitty gritties of um, examination results that we can as you know, optometrists that we can provide you in the referral letter. Obviously, we provide you with a refraction, history of glasses, previous glasses, stable script, contact lenses. Um, do you like seeing a cyclode RX in there? Because obviously from a clinical um, side, that does require additional time um, or maybe a secondary appointment that we need to get the patient back in for. Do you like seeing um, topography maps, CCTs, BV status, you know, all those sorts of things? What are some other points that we can um, fill the referral letter in with that you like to see that then, you know, differentiates a basic referral compared to a detailed um, referral from an optometrist? 
Yeah, so look, for me, the most important things in the referral are going to be stability of refraction, number one. I don't want to hear, oh, I, I think I'm, st-. the patients will often say, I think I'm stable. There was a little bit of a change. My glasses changed three months ago and, the, you know, the script jumped a bit, but they usually don't have that detail. So if the optometrist can give us, and sometimes the optometrist doesn't have the history, but as much as possible, if they can give us um, the history of refraction so I can see exactly where they were two years ago and three years ago, and the younger they are, the younger the patient is rather, the more important that stability is. Um, because obviously young patients are still growing and changing more so than older patients. Um, that's really, really helpful. And I have some referrers who really elegantly write out the RX, you know, 2018, 19, 2020 and so on, and, and that's really helpful. Cyclorefractions are fantastic for hyperopes. It really saves the patient having to um, have a prolonged um, assessment at the clinic. I mean, we're really spending a lot of time. Our patients are here for about two hours for the initial assessment and the cyclo obviously adds time and discomfort and they, they can't drive themselves in if they're cycloed as well. So if that can be done, I really do appreciate it. Mm. Um, and and then, again, any any interesting issues with contact lens intolerance, anterior surface dry eye, that information is important as well. And I think it shows that um, they have a, a great relationship with optometrists, you know, because they're, they're going back multiple times, they're trusting their optometrist so that when they do get the referral to us, then, you know, there is that trust already established, which is a great thing to have as well. So I agree. We don't really need a whole lot of detail, but what Abby has highlighted are important. And, yeah, cyclo for hyperopes is essential. Um, when we see them, but not not essential for the optometrists to do it if they don't have the opportunity to do it. Mm, that's right. Yep. We'll always do it if we need to, but it, it does save time if they can send it in. The yep. maps are less important because we're really using our own diagnostic imaging to make the clinical decision on surgery anyway. Mm. Um, people are always welcome to send in any investigations they've got if, if, if they like, but uh, realistically we, we don't tend to use them for mm. our assessment. Anything else, Tess? Um, I think um, the other things that I find um, important are, you know, if they've had strabismus, if they've had amblyopia, because sometimes, you know, that's not so obvious, even though we ask it at every visit. Like if, if there's information there on that, that's quite helpful. And, you know, the prisons uh, in their glasses, things like that. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, strabismus and um, diplopia, it's, it's, it's a... Very wild world of pain there. There's a lot to a lot to look for and a lot to test for. I've had some very very interesting patients along those lines in recent yeah. times, and Christina knows. And we've had actually three or four in the last week alone, and we've had uh, strabismus surgeons, squint surgeons involved to help us make um, assessments in terms of whether those patients are going to be suitable. But yeah, the other thing, Christina, I just want to mention. I, I think there's a there's a wide perception in the community that laser is only suitable for a certain cohort, and I think people need to start thinking outside of the square. So, look, we're living in a difficult world. We've got all these excessive stresses at the moment. We've got wars, and we've got floods, and we've got COVID, and we've got climate change, and people are anxious already. I, I find that what People with poor vision as a result of uncorrected refractive error are feeling in this in this environment is a sense of wanting to look after themselves and 
control their little microenvironment, which is themselves their homes. I mean, people are renovating their homes, they're looking after their health. And one of the things people are doing are wanting to correct their refractive error. They want to get up. You know, someone said to me the other day, you know, um, they'd been caught in bushfires before and, and this flooding situation is really triggering their anxiety again. Uh, even though they're in Victoria and they're not subject to the flooding, they said, look, I'm, I'm so nervous again. What if I get up in the middle of the night and I can't see my way out of a room and I can't find my glasses? I'm terrified. I want to have laser surgery so I can just wake up and see so I can find my way out of a room. It was a really interesting motivation for surgery. But uh, you have to take into account that people have different reasons. And with all these stresses happening around us, people are focusing on what can I do to make my body functional in its natural form? And and laser surgery can really offer that to people. Uncorrected refractive error is in many ways, um, and particularly with the with the high refractions, we know it's a disability. And, yeah, and I, yeah, I agree that, you know, now that or with all this anxiety, that they, they do want to reduce their sense of helplessness, don't they? Yeah, I think it's really really important. I had another woman, just to, to give another example, she thought that she was phobic of swimming and water. She was actually an ICL patient. She was about a minus 18 myope. Mm-hmm. And I put ICLs into her and she came back after her surgery and she said, Abby, I went for a swim. It's the first time, and this is weeks after she had, it's the first time in my life I wanted to go for a swim. And I got into the water and I realised I wasn't afraid of the water my whole life. I was afraid that I'd be underwater and I couldn't see which way's up. Mm. And, um, again, going back to those anxieties around uh, poor uncorrected vision, they're real, they're real. I had another guy, and this is where I want optoms to think outside the square. I had a patient come in. He was a, he was a 21-year-old plus nine. And, and we all know that plus nine is a difficult script to live with. Uh, glasses and contacts can be highly dysfunctional with that with that script and he just couldn't manage he couldn't he was unable to study he was unable to drive he was unable to work he was really in a stuck position and uh, he came in wanting some advice and his cornea was suitable for LASIK but of course we can't do a plus nine it's not safe Um, but he was a microphthalmos as well and even though a lens exchange would have corrected him fully he was way too shallow for ICL uh, anyway, mm. but even, even if a lens exchange could correct him, there was no way I was going to suggest that. It was a dangerous surgery for him and he was 21. So I said to him, look, I've got a compromise. I can't correct you fully, but I can halve your script. I can treat half your script with a LASIK and it will mean you can wear glasses and contacts which are functional. And I discussed it with him, his father, his optometrist, and we came up with a plan and we ended up treating half his script, so he's now plus 450, and he is thrilled with the result. Mm. Yeah. It's turned a dysfunctional life into a functional life. So so even when optoms get patients like that, Christina, they shouldn't discount the possibility that mm. we can help them maybe even with a partial correction. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good point. We're gone to the days where you just got to stick to those strict parameters. It's obviously that assessment of their quality of life and if you know there are options to help and what those options are and even just you know relieving somewhat of their dependence on those Mm -hmm. glasses and contacts is really going to make a big impact. I had a very similar case but you know this patient was a down syndrome patient with you know minus 15 and there was no way I could correct all of it um, 
with LASIK and we discussed ICL, we discussed LASIK, we discussed SMILE. And the good thing about SMILE, I know that I'm not sure that you have it in Melbourne, but we, um, we've been doing it in Sydney. But with SMILE, you can extend that range of treatment up to about minus 12 and a half. So we discussed leaving him a little bit myopic. And, you know, his, his mother, um, you know, she said, look, I'm not going to be around, you know, for the rest of his life. And I know that he needs something now because I know that I want him to be um, somewhat independent. And even if he's minus two, minus three, you know, that would give him a whole lot of function that he wouldn't have being minus 15. So, yeah, it's absolutely um, important that we don't kind of just limit uh, based on the parameters that we know. Yeah, 100%. That's a beautiful case. And Mm. I love these cases, Tess. I love them. Yeah. I mean, we make a difference to people every day with this surgery, but particularly for those patients who have circumstances that are more difficult, it just changes their life and it changes the life of people around them. Yeah. Mm. With um, the mention of smile there, Tess, with with patients that you get presented um, to you where you've got options of PRK, LASIK, smile, what are the, you know, main things that you look at to select a patient for each of those different techniques? Like, you know, um, a patient with dry eyes, are they better suited for smile? Or like you mentioned, yeah. with a minus 12 and a half higher script, more yeah. suited for smile. Like what are the different categories you select on? So with smile, we can't do hyperopic treatment. So really it's limited to um, myopic treatment. And it can range, you know, from anywhere. My lowest script is about minus 125, minus one and a half. Um, right up to minus 12 and a half, which includes astigmatism of up to five doctors. So really, um, if they're suitable for LASIK, they're also suitable for SMART if they're myopic in that range. So um, my preference now is to kind of um, convert a lot more LASIK to SMART for those reasons you mentioned, you know, for the reduction in dry eye symptoms, for the structural stability, um, and, and just that you know, we're, we're moving towards small incision in everything in, in medicine. So I think it kind of just makes sense biologically. So a lot of my patients are moving towards small. You get, if, if they're hyperopic, so like um, Abby mentioned earlier, if they're plus four, plus four and a half, obviously they have to have LASIK. And with, with PRK, I guess that's kind of like a second option if the corneas are thin. So if they're under 500 microns, then we tend to do PRK. But PRK is kind of like a little bit more limited in the range that we, we treat. I mean, we can treat in a similar range to LASIK, but we shouldn't. And uh, the effect is, I guess, uh, it's less effective. So the range for PRK for me is about plus two to minus five. Yeah, yeah I, I actually go higher with PRK. Just a comment on SMILE first, though. I've done SMILE before as well, but look, in the past, SMILE and LASIK were very similar in terms of what they could offer Mm -hmm. um, and and very similar in terms of range and and results. And initially we were doing SMILE and found it to be very, very similar uh, to to LASIK. However, the SMILE technology is improving, it's changing, and we're looking now at their new technology, which they're talking about, in terms of hyperopic treatments, and it's not it's not released yet, and no, but, they, but it is something that potentially, potentially within a year from now, they might look at 
releasing tests. Have you have you looked at that? Yeah, if, I've actually you, used it. I've yeah, used Vision Max eight hundred, yeah. and like it's just oh, it's just phenomenal. The, yeah. the technology and the speed, the speed of the laser yeah. cut, yeah. just cuts it into half. And you know, patients yeah. on the table for you know under thirty seconds. Yeah, so I think there's a little bit of a watch this space because I'm excited about that technology. We were, we, I think they were hoping to, um, well, I know they were hoping to do a bit of a launch at Ransco, but unfortunately the, the uh, conference moved to an online platform so it wasn't as easy. But I think that small space will also expand and change in the coming year, yeah. um, which is really great. And just a note on PRK, I think everyone's got different attitude towards PRK. I like trans-PRK, obviously, for the thinner cornea, for the slight irregularity, for the bottom of the spectrum on the form frost keratoconics, for the dry eye. Those mm-hmm. patients do well with PRK. And I have done a number of cases up to probably nine diopters. Wow. Um, yeah. And I know that's, you know, I know it's it's less conventional, but I've chosen those patients carefully. It's not for mm, everyone. Mm. Um, and they've done exceptionally well. They have to they have to be prepared for a, a slower healing process. It takes a month or two for those patients to find that their quality vision is up there. Um, but they have done really well. So I've actually got far more faith in uh, trans-PRK with higher yeah. scripts than I did with uh, PRK I, previously. I totally agree with you. There is a, a definite place for PRK. I just, I think just recently with our COVID pandemic, though, I am super worried about the epithelial healing. And, and if I don't, you know, have an opportunity to address any problems post-operatively, for example, if I've done the PRK, they get COVID, they have to be isolated. I'm kind of stuck as to where and when I can see them again. And, you know, I, I always have that, worry about the slow healing and the the infection and things like that so I think yeah I I think definitely there is a place for PRK but just recently I've just been very concerned about anyone who's got you know poor epithelial healing and COVID times things like that. Well I I, living in Melbourne have a different uh, patient population and it's probably worth saying to our listeners out there that Melbourne is the capital of dry eye and hay fever. Mm. It really is. And, um, in fact, I met a friend from Sydney here on the weekend and we went for a walk and there were plane trees everywhere and she said, my gosh, I normally don't have hay fever and, and asthma and I just feel like rubbing my eyes, I'm itchy, I'm sneezy. She felt really hay feverish. Uh, so eyes, eyes are drier here. They're, they're, they're more subject to hay fever allergies, so on and so forth. Certainly the respiratory physicians and dermatologists here have a very difficult time with asthma and, and uh, eczema and so forth. So we find here that, that the dry eye is a reason for people to convert from LASIK to PRK, and we do use a lot of lubricants before, during and afterwards. Mm. So I think environment probably makes a difference. I've lived in Sydney 10 years myself and I can tell you a more humid environment is far more comfortable on the eyes. Mm. So mm. good point. Sorry, Very good yeah, point with environment. Probably, yeah. yeah. Mm. Another interesting type of patient that we get, I suppose, often is your presbyope or your pre-presbyope who comes and sits in their chair in our chair and says, I want to get laser surgery to fix the fact that I need reading glasses. How do we often the response is no, you can't get laser surgery to fix that. Instead of just saying a blanket no, or uh, you know, what's what's a 
different type of conversation that we can have with those patients. What are the options that we can suggest? I know you ladies are, you know, yes, you're refractive surgeons, but you're also cataract surgeons as well. So what's the best type of conversation or advice that you often give to these types of presenting patients? I find these patients um, kind of, they're in the hard basket. And I always kind of, you know, tell them, hey, welcome to middle age. From here on, everything's going to be a compromise. So I start out like setting their expectations low because I think they're in for compromise from here on. So then I start, you know, talking about monovision and then I'd start talking about lens surgeries. And then, you know, like it's it's kind of like, do you want to wait for better technology, especially if they're emotropic and they're so used to seeing well that they will not accept compromise. So I find the conversation can be quite long, but I really do need them to understand what the compromises are. So, um, yeah, what, how do you start your conversation, Abby? Yeah, look, I, I agree. They're really in that interim age group. Um, the pre-presbyopes are difficult, particularly if they're emotropic, because they're so used to excellent distance vision and they're not prepared to compromise that. And I don't think I don't think that a 40-year-old emotrope is the right patient for an RLE. They are potentially, mm. I actually put a lot of them in glasses or mm. lenses and I send them back to the optoms and I say, look, I know you're here because you want to talk to me about getting out of glasses or contact lenses, but I think potentially for you at the moment, you need to go away, wear the reading glasses for a period of time, see how presbyopia feels for you. And if in a year or two you're not coping with it well, you'll be a little bit older at that stage, you can come back, we can assess you again and have a chat about suitable options. Yeah. I think, you know, probably I can't put a number on it, but roughly half the patients that come to see me in that category, I might turn away from surgery at that point in time. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really honest thing to do as well. And they do appreciate that. I think, you know, patients want an honest assessment. And yes. if, if you, if they know you've got technology to operate, but you're telling them, no, I'm not going to operate your best option at this age, best quality vision for you is going to be glasses and or contact lenses. They really respect that. And they will come back down the track. They'll uh, if, if if they feel that things are deteriorating and then maybe three, four, five years down the track they'll end up with a surgery that suits. Yeah, not everyone is a is a, an obvious candidate, but then there are others who who love it. There are those people who by hook or crook do not want to wear glasses or contacts and they do accept monovision even at a youngish age and we do a contact lens trial always and if they like it, they might elect to have a single eye monovision treatment to tie them over, you know, you might do one diopter, for example, and they might come back in five years and jump to the next step of treatment, whether that's a higher monovision treatment or they might be looking at another technology at that stage. Mm -hmm. Do you know of any um, developments at the moment in technology around this refractive correction space that is trying to um, address presbyopes and what those options might be? Is there anything out there? Oh, there's always something out there. Presbyopia <laughs> market is massive and there have been, Tess and I can tell you just between the two of us, we have trialled so many different technologies over the years and many of them have been very promising. Uh, many of them have worked well but didn't last on the market. There have been all sorts of reasons. And I think the biggest issue at the moment is we are still amidst a pandemic and R&D has really suffered in some areas as, as a result of that. So, there's been a little bit of stagnation in terms of new products 
um, arriving on the market for presbyopia. But yes, uh, look, we probably can't. There are certain, you know, uh, there's certain information which Tess and I are probably aware of that we're not at liberty to discuss <laughs> in this forum. But yes, there are always technologies on on the move. Yeah, watch this space. And I do say, I always say to patients, if they come in and we go through all the current available options and we find that none of those options are perfect for them, I always say to them, don't lose hope. Come back in a couple of years and we'll see what's around then. Mm. I mean, we're doing surgeries now that we weren't doing five years ago and I, I like to compare it to other technologies. I say to them, you know, look at your smartphone. It's not the same smartphone you would have had 10 years ago. And certainly 15 years ago, things are always changing. So if there's nothing for you now, there might be something down the track. Mm -hmm. Tess, with, uh, so at the moment, obviously, you know, given COVID, there's been lots of telehealth um, mm -hmm. consultations that have been present, especially, you know, in the GP realm. Optometry-wise, a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you have approached, have, you know, taken on board in the clinic as telehealth consultations? I think I saw recently that Medicare has approved an item code where optometrists can be present with the patient and we're having a telehealth conversation with an ophthalmologist. Is that... Um, were you aware of that? Is that something that you feel might be effective um, in the clinic with, you know, sort of maybe pre-laser assessments or checking to see if a patient is a um, candidate to then come in and see you after that point? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I wasn't aware of that, but I think it's a good way to do it. I think it's, um, you know, showing that we're moving forward and collaborating. And I think it's always uh, reassuring for the patient to be seen face-to-face -face by a clinician. And if it's not you know, one of us, then an optometrist would be a great person to be doing that consultation face-to-face -face with the patient. So, yeah, I'm all for it. I think it would work. Mm, yeah, I thought it was an interesting one that could apply, particularly if we're limiting travel between clinics or, you know, for example, floods yeah. or natural um, yeah. events that are or even, you know, regional optometrists where we can actually sit down and discuss those questions, those that holistic approach with mm -hmm. the opthals. So I thought that that was an interesting yeah. one. And technology now these days allows us to do all this, doesn't it? Like even, you know, I have post-op patients who take photos of their eyes and send it to me and I'll say yay or nay, you know, come in or, or you can wait, you know. So technology is always improving and we should move along with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have neared the end of our podcast. Is there anything that you wanted to add as a final little bit, Abby or Tess, um, anything that uh, you thought would be interesting to put in or anything about yourselves with regards to the clinic and whatnot that you wanted to pop in? Well, there's an interesting <laughs> question. Look, I, I, think I, I really want people to feel that we're, they're very welcome to contact us. You know, if they're not sure, if if optoms are not sure, if they've got a patient that's difficult and they're not sure what to do with them, just call us, write us a letter, ask the question. I'm all for discussion and, and communication, and I think people shouldn't be afraid to ask. You know, I think shouldn't be people shouldn't be afraid. Patients shouldn't be afraid to come in and ask. I mean, the worst thing we can say is no, you're not suitable. But um, yeah, I, I'd like to see more open discussion, and I think that's um, that's something I'm I'm feeling is happening now more than it used to. I think people have got more confidence in terms of discussing uh, refractive surgery with with their patients and referring them into a clinic um, and contacting us as a clinic. Tess, I'm, I'm not sure if you want to add anything there. 
no, I, I think, you know, I agree with that. I think, you know, having that open communication, it facilitates, you know, patient care. So at the end of the day, we want the patient to have the best care, to have, you know, kind of just very transparent care between the optometrist and the patient and between us and the optometrist. And it, it might be a three-way thing. But I think at the end of the day, we, we do have the patient's best interests at heart. And if we're all you know, having that same goal, then the pa- the patient will be happy at the end of the day and then, um, you know, everyone's happy. I think all I, I guess, um, I just wanted to, I think we might have mentioned this already, but um, I think in the future, I think we're looking at improvements in technology. You've mentioned the SMILE, the SMILE for hyperopic treatment, um, even cross-linking is, is going to become more kind of, um, transportable. They've got, you know, cross linkers that can be fitted onto the slip lamp. Uh, we might be able to do um, more lens-based surgeries, you know, new lens technologies. And, and so we're always, I guess, looking forward and pushing the envelope. So it is, I think, good to just send patients in without any limitations. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for your input. Thank you, Tess. Thank you, Abby. Have a great rest of your day and we will talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you. It's nice speaking with you. Thank you. We thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Don't forget to fill in the registration attendance feedback form and to add this learning event to your CPD portfolio. Until next time, stay safe and continue with your great shared care.